Office hour 16, Brendan. We're back. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. Pretty fire? Good coffee? Great coffee. It's at that perfect temperature right now where it's like, I can really just... Mm. You want to tell the people about what you told me with your breakthrough finding of Starbucks cups and hot coffee? Oh, it's just a world of difference to drink it without the lid on. Mm. I mean your temperature regulation suffers, so you gotta be ready to drink fast. Once it hits that right sweet spot, you probably got like, I would say, depending on external temperatures, do you have about an hour? Oh. But damn, like <laughs> if you can if you can kill it. I think people would highly disagree with that time length. I mean, I've been, I've been going lid off. I mean, there's a 10 degree window, I would say, roughly. Mm-hmm. Some people so, like that one degree window. <laughs> I mean, they're psychopaths out there for sure. <laughs> Beggars can't be choosing. That's right. So who's our... Uh... Andrew Reiner, author of Better Boys, Better Men. Um, unbelievable conversation. We talked about so much in a way that does not get nearly enough attention. I, I'm a big fan of root problem, like root cause analysis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's getting at here. Right. And I think that that's super important because it takes out a lot of like individual blaming and guilt and a lot of that other stuff. And it helps people find reason in maybe why they're a certain way or why people they know are a certain way. And it is empowering to get them towards solutions. I think it's, it's a good thing. So, yeah. So just to recap, Um, He's a professor at Towson University. He teaches English. uh, And this book that he recently wrote, Better Boys, Better Men, is all about changing the way we think about masculinity. Um, And man, like you said, I think this was such an important topic. I think so just jumping right into it. I just always reflect back on kind of like how men have been in my life and then also more recently with like the clinical work that I do whenever there's like a boy or a man presenting with symptoms there's almost always anger involved like anger is pretty much highlighted in there and then with my like coworkers everybody understands that like underneath this anger is depression or sadness or something mm-hmm. like that Um, but still like these behaviors are existing significantly in families and it's really disruptive. And I think that was, has been like one of my main takeaways is that like he, he said in the book, there's this static and dynamic definition of masculinity. And we're very set on the static in our culture of like, you need to be this way. Men are have to be brave. They have to have this call to action. They have to have every right answer. Um, you can't appear like you're a failure or maybe you're just curious about stuff because you need to know what you're doing. Um, and then there's just no emotional like flexibility that you're supposed to be able to have. It's like you're supposed to be stoic, which has its benefits, but at the same time, we don't want to neglect things that are coming up for us. And so there's this like one socially acceptable emotion that's pretty much anger because it is perceived as being like tough or strong and then everything else kind of gets pushed away. And this has several deep problems. Um, what are, 
before I get into that, what are some of your thoughts that are coming? Well, up? I'm just thinking like you made the the correlation to like stoicism as maybe an ideal that we should strive for as men that's like throughout society. Um, and I would say like, I actually even think it is, mm -hmm. but what is like sorely neglected is an understanding of what it means to get to a place where you've achieved that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, it's not just, it's not just do the action that a stoic would do, right? It's believe the philosophy because there's, if, if I were to draw a comparison between like, you know, let's just say, let's just say like, you know, there's a common, um, Ryan holiday, who's a author about a lot of the stoic philosophy stuff talks about, a story about Thomas Edison when he was inventing the light bulb. He had this giant factory and mm -hmm. it caught fire and it was burning to the ground. Like everything he had worked for was right in front of him. And he was with his kids in the car and they were on the outside of the factory. And it, his factory, his life essentially was burning to the ground. And he turns to his kids and says, go get your mother. She's never going to see a fire like this again in her life. As in, and like, so that's this good story to show like what somebody who's a stoic would do not and he went on to like build a better and bigger factory and became more wealthy and famous from it so it's like looking at that negative thing as an opportunity but what we don't talk about is that somebody can have a very similar reaction where they're where they don't say anything they're quiet and they bottle it up but that is not the same thing uh yeah so we get caught up in this ideal of trying to stop strive for doing what maybe that like ideal masculine identity like kind of like try and personify that ourselves without doing the prerequisite emotional bolstering to be able to handle acting in that way in mm. the negative situation. And I think that that's just like, that's where this book is starting to build on top of like, how does somebody get started and where are we not getting our kids started in establishing that emotional resilience to be in front of extreme tragedy or whatever and still have a you know quote unquote like strong masculine response yeah you know and i think that's just like a very under talked about we didn't even talk about it in the conversation because i didn't really make this stoicism connection until you said that but man like if you if you haven't done the work on yourself to to really understand how big picture this is not important you still have everything in your life going for you you still have every like you just like to do to try and embody the masculine ideal i'll, I'll call it is an impossibility because mm -hmm. you will like you're saying start manifesting all of these emotions as anger mm -hmm. like you're saying that you see in your clinical work and then that is just so non-productive towards like starting to culminate the like the foundation of emotional stability that is necessary to be right. the like the masculine ideal i guess no yeah you just hit on such a good point that i don't think i've fully put into perspective too is that we have this idea of like what is ideal for being like stoic of understanding your emotions, understanding what's coming up for you, and then being able to move forward. But we kind of almost put that idea or that ideal on 
like a child or a teen and expect them to know what the hell to do mm -hmm. in that situation and say like, it's fine, just move on instead of saying like, hey, this was probably really tough. There's probably a ton of emotions that are coming up for you right now. Like, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. And then also see if we can see this as an opportunity to move forward. We like skip that whole piece. Yeah. And then it's, as people progress, they get so confused and it manifests in one way that is probably not very good mm -hmm. and boom yeah it's pervasive man i so this is what's been coming up for me in like my clinical work too is i really start to understand like what these things mean in our society so like different diagnoses can be very stigmatizing mm -hmm. and they can be seen in a very bad light and so it's really important to consider like what type of diagnosis you want to diagnose somebody with, um, especially a child, because it's going to carry on with them throughout their lives. Uh, so for example, like oppositional defiant disorder, like conduct disorder, it's mainly around a lot of out like behavioral outbursts. And this diagnosis uh, is seen as like, oh, this, this kid's a problem. Mm -hmm. Like they're going to be like, outwardly behave terribly and this diagnosis sometimes gets put on like four or five-year-old kids six-year-old kids um, who have probably only seen their parents experience or their fathers specifically present with anger um, present with violence and it's a learned behavior so now they're acting these behaviors out as they're super dysregulated uh, and they have like complex trauma histories and then they don't get the intervention or care that they maybe need. They become teens and these behaviors get even more extreme maybe. Uh, and then there's like the whole school, the prison pipeline. So the school system views them differently. Um, juvenile systems view them differently. And then as they become adults, like these things become criminal. And then that becomes, it's just, it's like this cycle of, I mean, everybody talks about the school to prison pipeline, and that is so real because mm -hmm. these things are encouraged, like in our society. Like if they're expressing with anger, it's it's somewhat reinforced. And if it's not reinforced um, in one way, it's going to be reinforced in another way by like schools seeing this kid as this way or uh, employees seeing as this person this way or different, different types of things like this. And... Uh, it's just crazy because there, I think it's, uh, it's been in, it's a heavy topic, um, but it's been a good thing for me to really think about because uh, as a clinician, it's really important to like reflect on what kind of impact we have on people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, in general, like, yeah, so just this diagnosis piece has been really hitting me, hitting home for me ever since this conversation. Yeah, what's the... What's the like standard procedure for like, let's, okay, let's say you, I'm going to like run you through a hypothetical and I want to tell, I want you to tell me in your clinical setting, like what the, the following actions would be. Okay. So you have a child who comes in, um, who's brought in by their parents. Let's, let's say they're five, uh, maybe like five, let's say five to seven, just so there's like, or in that range where like, you know, a little more attentiveness and 
maturity is starting to like like they're growing out of like the really testing socially like a like a two through four year old Mm -hmm. would really be doing and like trying to integrate socially and not understanding and like testing those waters so they're kind of starting to figure out the social piece of like how to how to behave even if they don't do it perfect and they're acting out in school and it's like been becoming problematic like where there's been some like physical outbursts let's say um and they come to you and you're like doing an initial like like i don't know i don't know the process but like you're initially screening this individual and like trying to understand their situation where like what are the steps from somebody like that comes into the office to we like they leave that day and there's like a treatment plan laid out for them like what does that process look like uh so it'll look different depending on the site um okay there'll be typically like so give a me formal. a hypothetical site not not necessarily even one from your personal experience just like you know yeah yeah you'll go over consent forms um obtain consent by whoever the the caregiver is or whoever the necessary person is um and then you'll just start an intake process typically you'll start it with the caregiver or mm-hmm. uh, whoever is has custody of the child um and then Depending on the treatment model, too, they How, might... How's the treatment model determined? Uh, also, somewhat by the site or by the clinician. Okay. Um, so I'm still a trainee, so this is still stuff that's new to me. Uh, I'm still learning, but I know that, like, in some specific treatment models, uh, like child-parent psychotherapy, which they really want to focus on, um, the relationship between the child and the caregiver, uh, they will have like a pretty longer, like a lot longer intake process to where there are certain steps of gathering this information from caregiver, asking them certain assessment questions, um, potentially talking to other collateral contacts, maybe like a teacher or something, uh, but then also assessing like how they interact in a room. Um, so they'll just have them play in a room and you'll watch through like a two-way mirror, um, things like that. So yeah, it's... And then at what point in that process does diagnosis come in so depends on the site as well Mm -hmm. if you have medical um then diagnosis at the outset sometimes so you have like an intake process maybe it's like a two-hour meeting diagnosed by the end of that create a treatment plan Mm. see this is interesting to me this is very interesting to me and that's for billing purposes because in order to start billing for services medical requires a diagnosis right which is it's a whole nother conversation yeah that's a, that's a whole nother conversation about like the you know medical industrial complex that we don't need to get into it's but my tough. main my, like the reason i even started asking these questions because it goes it goes right back to what you were saying like the minute you get diagnosed that is with you for life it if you get a severe like if it i mean and granted like not necessarily with you for life as in like other people are going to know the minute I tell you, Nick, Bob, that you are something you are now believing that you are something. Yeah. No, and there's yeah, a psychological right. impact yeah. of being told that you're something and that yes. you like, so I guess my, my main question and the reason I was going down this like, like series of questions was like, where is there a, like, there should be a very, very serious 
tone behind a diagnosis. And it feels, again, from the outsider, I'm nowhere near as close to this business as you are. But just like understanding the issues and the problems that are out there, it feels like we'll just go ahead and diagnose everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I could, like if somebody sat in a room with me, they could diagnose me with something, Mm -hmm. you know? Oh yeah. If you say like you're worried about something, then. Oh, you must have anxiety. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So like, why are we in this diagnostic game? Like it's, it's like, it's not man, I wonder if this person has a diagnosis. It's like, I wonder which diagnosis they have. And that's like a really scary mindset, Mm. especially when we start looking at how, and I'm not saying that diagnoses are unjustified. You know what I mean? Like they're absolutely like the process is needed, but like I would compare it to any other major issue where if we over, if we over identify with a specific problem, we dilute the legitimacy of the, of the people who are really suffering from the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. That's the whole issue with all of this, because it becomes like these labels become a part of people's identities. And it's not just that like people take that on themselves, but it's how other people push Mm -hmm. that onto them. Yeah. Like if you say, Oh, you struggle with depression then it's like, oh, I'm a depressed person. Right. And that's not the reality. It's like, right. you're struggling with this at this time. Yeah. Like, I heard a comparison recently that, like, there's um, people who will, like, end, like diagnoses of end-of-life depression when given a terminal, a terminal uh, oh, yeah. diagnosis. And it's like, because I think there's, like, two very different and again, correct me where I'm wrong here, but there's like two very different types of depression. There's like a very clinical type of depression where like you like very different seems to be unknown and unknowable, the causes of this depression. Um, and it just comes over you and it is like very anxiety driven or like it comes with a lot of anxiety. And then there's like this you've just got some shitty news and you're sad that we want to also call depression. And I'm like, I don't know that like, sure. There's, there's some legitimacy to calling that depression, but there's also some very clear drivers to why that would be not depression. Right. Like you can get shitty news, be sad and not be a depressed person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like that it's those types of distinctions that are not made enough. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a huge problem when we start lumping all of these people together. And again, when we go back to this idea of like raising boys and raising men and like just like having the youth of society in general, we are over diet. Like, again, a non-professional opinion. This is just a statement. I feel that we are over diagnosing and over categorizing everybody to the point that even people who are legitimately, let's say, diagnosed as depressed don't feel that that diagnosis is really worth, like, doesn't tell them anything about themselves because everybody's that that way. Right. And it, in my opinion, can be extremely counterproductive to actually helping somebody who's really experiencing the true clinical signs of these issues it, it prevents them from getting better because they feel like, well, like everybody's this way and we don't get better from it. So like, this is just the state of my existence now. Mm-hmm. And 
it's that type of like overdiagnostic and altered mindset that I feel like pushes a lot of young boys and men into like, I just, I am just an aggressive outbursting kind of a person. This is who I am. This is who I'm always going to be rather than like, like legitimizing again, maybe just like the traumatic end of life stuff. What if we're just like, maybe it's just like opening up the lines of communication so that they can understand their emotions. And then the diagnosis goes away. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe it's not something so deeply rooted in like their psyche. And it's just them not able to navigate their environment and their emotions. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, and again, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but it no. feels very troubling that like after our conversation, I feel like that is kind of what we were getting into a little bit. Yeah. Is like that when young men don't understand how to deal with it is going to manifest this way. I, I see young boys acting out and I'm like, of, of, and I see like, you know, I don't obviously know the nitty gritty behind everybody's life story and what goes on in the home life, but like, of course there's so many young men acting out. Like this is an incredibly like chaotic and stressful time. And if young men aren't understanding how to manage this, there's, infinite number of daily stresses that all people can experience in a day mm-hmm. it's it's like it's innumerable how many things that we could ha- choose to be anxiety ridden over and if they're not given the framework to understand how to let certain things go and deal with certain things and then the things that they do deem worthy of dealing with how to address those things like of course they're going to be out there's going to be outbursts and there's going to be yeah. emotional anger like and I feel like we put such a crazy expectation on the children without taking accountability for what is the adult's role in making sure that that child is set up to go out into the world to be a functioning part of society. Right. That is the job of a parent Yeah, is to make sure that their children can go out and, and socially acclimate without them present, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a lot of ways, that's like literally the only goal of a parent. Yeah. And if people aren't a, like if people are going into the parenting phases of their life and they have not committed to making the necessary sacrifices to manifest the reality of their child getting the things that they need then they are going to have the negative repercussions of child outbursts and negativity and aggression especially mm-hmm. when we talk about the young men so there's my soapbox <laughs> please take it away from there <laughs> no i again i think that you're making such a good point with uh, these like larger terms, like what what the hell is masculinity? And then mm-hmm. what the hell is depression? I guess we have maybe a clinical definition and some criteria that make it up, but what does that mean for that person? Like what are some of the things that are causing that person this feeling? Mm-hmm. And as we like just label people with these types of things, um, everybody feels like, oh, this, this must be what it is. Um, but if we, d- if we don't ask like how this actually shows up for that person in their specific life, then we don't see it as an umbrella term. We see it as the thing when there's probably all these other things underneath that are underlying what is actually going on. Mm-hmm. And if we don't provide people with the language to name what's coming up for them, then it's going to feel so confusing and, it's going to be really hard for people in their body and mind to understand like how 
am I supposed to navigate what's coming up for me? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm angry and I just say, oh, I'm angry, like I'm an angry person, well, that doesn't do anything for me. And you're going to hold on to that anger. <laughs> yeah. you're gonna Because you're going to start to identify with it. Right. Yeah. But if I can understand like, maybe I'm really frustrated or stressed or sad. Uh, maybe I'm bored. I don't know, something. Yeah. Like if I can't understand that, um, then there's going to be no healthy resolution to what's coming up for me. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, this is just, again, I think that's why I really enjoyed this book and like this conversation is because like we're saying, this stuff gets talked about, like the the thing of toxic masculinity gets talked about and thrown out there. But these underlying messages and roots do not get addressed. Like right. it's just saying like, this is bad. Like it needs yeah. to change. And it's like, okay, then how the hell am I supposed to change? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like, the, well, figure it out. <laughs> I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but it's like, it's the idea of rights versus responsibilities. Yeah. A ma- the mainstream conversation around masculinity circles around like how a toxically masculine personality steps on the rights of other people. Mm. And I think that what the real conversation needs to be about is is personal responsibility as men and as people in relationships with men to hold people accountable to doing their part to ensure that no piece of their masculinity is overbearing for you know, the group that they're in and that they're not stepping on other people's toes and whatever, whatever that looks like in their life, you know, it's personal responsibility. Like, you know, and this kind of reminds me of the conversation we had a while back about like the president, you know what I mean? That we were talking about Donald Trump and like everybody gets so triggered by the presidential and the Donald Trump conversations. And I think this is like maybe a better way of defining like where I come from on the whole presidential thing. It's like, I'm just like, great whoever the president is like has nothing to do with me. Like, because the actions I'm going to take are going to be grounded in me taking responsibility for myself. Mm. Not what is Donald Trump doing to me or what is Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whatever, like the local government during the man, the like shutdowns, like what are they doing to me? It's like, like it does it suck and sometimes are there oversteps of um power 100% like no, there's no denying that mm-hmm. but at the end of the day the only really thing the only thing that i can have 100% control over changing the outcome of is the next decision that i make mm-hmm. and yeah i feel like if more people took that like what can i do to better my own situation. You know, collectively we have to like have an undertone of like social reform. I think that's a true thing, but on an individual level, we all also have to take accountability for the things that we do and our own and we have to have personal responsibility. It's like <laughs> it's like such a funny little thing, but I remember having a conversation, I think it was with my parents and I was like we were just talking about like how crazy things had gotten. And one of my comments that or like something that a comment somebody made that we were all just kind of laughing about is like, 
if you can't take your shopping cart in the grocery store and put it in the in the place where it's supposed to be (laughs) and you just ramp it up on the curb don't talk to me about social justice because you're not doing your part oh man you know what i mean like because you're triggering somebody else who's about to come in and park there you are the butterfly effect is happening every negative decision that you make Mm. you know what i mean so if you're just gonna pop your thing up on the curb in the middle of the parking lot you're not contributing to the solution (laughs) and people need to think of it as that small of actions are what is necessary to make the greatest level of change Mm -hmm. and i think that's the way we need to do it with the masculinity conversation yeah yeah i do because those little things add up i i go back to that point that he made in this book of so he had these different conversations with teachers and um, he noticed this in like some focus groups that he did with groups of like teen boys uh, that there was this like lack of questions in the classroom from boys and young men. And like when when I read that, I was like, what? Like, what the hell is that? And then he goes on to say that like there can't be this openness to appearing like you don't know what your what is what the answer is like that you need to know the answer to this question um because you need to just always be right and i was like oh damn like that really can be damaging if that's actually what a lot of boys are feeling and i think to a certain extent i did feel that somewhat um i didn't know what it was but <clears throat> excuse me but that's so terrible for like just progressing forward and learning if like you can't feel comfortable to ask a question then how does that show up and i i told you this too i i'm so curious about how this shows up on like more important topics and exam like more important exams or something to where maybe you have a question and if you ask that question something great will happen and you'll learn from it uh, but if you don't, then you just step away from that situation in the same exact place that you were at, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, uh, I'm glad that we've, I mean, I know that you've always been open to questions, but that I've come to this point too, to where like being curious and uh, vulnerable is completely the right way to go about things because yes. you don't know stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude, like I know this is like such an interesting, like, like I'm just making all kinds of correlations in my head right now, because one of the things I'm going to try and keep this like pretty succinct, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, like the, the idea that you were just posing, right. Of like the, the negative aspect of not allowing questions and curiosity to be pursued. It was like this really weird. I've been listening for our listeners, like the, the few of you who would go out and like, look this up. I've been listening to this, a series on YouTube done by Jordan Peterson where he's like digging into um, basically making a case for the psychological um, basis of living essentially that is present in the Bible. And it's pretty interesting. And one of the things he talks about is this idea of having like an aim and trajectory in your life and like shooting for something. And that, that like in a lot of sense being curious and going towards new information is not only a like a great way of like learning and growing as a person, but it's ask, actually like a necessity for like 
purpose and development and like feeling whole in your life is like moving. And he like used the correlation of the word information. Like we use the word information all the time, but like when you think of it from a psychological perspective of like the growth, the growth that comes from, you know, curiosity and inquiry and things of that nature and asking questions. Um, and then you split up the two words and you look at it and it's in formation and you think of it as like g- mm. such a growth wow. word. Like it, the, the word <clears throat> comes with so much additional meaning of growth. Th- like information is growth. And I think like to the point you're making, like we are drastically limiting the growth potential of so much of our youth by not giving them a space where they can feel comfortable enough to ask questions. Yeah. And this is just the classroom setting in general, almost like with the idea of lecture based classes as opposed to discussion based. Yeah. Like if you're just being thrown all this information um, without a chance to kind of reflect back, like what's coming up for you, like, are you really learning? I don't know. Maybe are you growing? You, yeah. Are you becoming a better person? Right. Like on a, on a much deeper level than like learning like learning's great but i think it's a byproduct of trying to grow too you know mm-hmm. and like if we're not giving people the space like yeah i think i think all four years of high school in reality should have a, a, a seminar a discussion based yeah. class a small discussion based class where you like your participation is your, dependent on your grade mm-hmm. or your grade is dependent on your participation yeah because you as unfortunate as it is, I know some people get a lot of anxiety about sharing, but like, you know, to go into that obstacle is the way type of a stoic mindset, like you've got to share, you've got, you've got to contribute. And where does that come from too? Right? Like why do people have anxiety about sharing? It's probably because they feel stupid and wrong. Like you're saying, and it's not encouraged enough. Yeah. Jesus. (laughs) The answers are right there, man. Dude, But for real, right? Like I think about, the education system in my experience and extremely grateful for the education I've had and continue to have. But if like, I was just like zombieing through each day of like, go to this class, go to this class, learn this, learn this. And I never critically thought about anything. <laughs> for real. Like maybe like two things that came up no, once a year. Your critical thinking came from like creativity through sports, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's I'm sure that's how a lot of young people like express their creativity and critical thinking skills. But like, yeah, it's just such a weird thing. Like you go through so many years of schooling to like not really feel like you've critically thought about much at all. And I feel like that's an uncomfortably common sentiment. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the huge benefit that we have doing office hours specifically, Mm -hmm. because we could have that conversation with a professor leave it at that and go on with our lives. But if we don't take this time to actually like process and talk about what Mm -hmm. that conversation was like and like two weeks or a week later, like what are the effects still then like it might have such a lesser impact. Yeah. I mean, half of the way I'm continuing to learn for myself is by saying these things out loud and trying to process them out loud as we're having these conversations, Mm -hmm. you know, that, as much as I'm like trying to synthesize to like further the conversation, I'm also synthesizing to battle test my own thoughts to see if they sound stupid or not. 
you know? Yeah. And like putting them out there so that you can challenge them or rethink them in your own way. Because if you think of something that I haven't thought of, then I want to hear that. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting uh, dilemma the youth of our nation see themselves in. It is. This, uh, I've been. Do, do you think speech and debate as a, as a, um, like a club in high school should be like a real class? Yeah. I wonder if we can call it something else. So I feel like the term speech and debate is very politicized now and it's like yeah sound it's like for the people who want to be lawyers and politicians right yeah and so no one really wants to touch that unless you're really wanting to get into that it should be called like i don't know we're gonna have to come up with a name if you guys have a name verbal for, discussion yeah something speech and debate verbal discussion i mean <laughs> talk with your friends <laughs> chitty chatty <laughs> yeah something that's like just like hey you're gonna talk about stuff and it's yeah. gonna be really cool yeah. Those have been my favorite classes. I took this class at uh, DVC. Well, I took two of the classes with the professor because I, I love them. They're psych courses and she taught about theory, but every class she would open up with some question about like, what are relationships supposed to look like? Mm-hmm. And just kind of almost left it at that. And then students would chime in. She would play, uh, like the opposing role at times and like offer like, well, what about this side? And then somebody else would say something else. And God, I was so engaged and so enthralled in that class every time because I was learning from my peers, learning from the professor, rethinking my opinion. And it was just fantastic. Yeah. It's so funny to think about too. Like I just remember as like a, a young person, one thing I would regularly do and like, I definitely had no clue. Like I could not have put the words I'm about to put to it at the time, but like I had a buddy who I would regularly like just call out for being wrong (laughs) on things that, and I would take the opposite stance and I had no, no insight or intellectual reason to have thought that I, my side was right. But like, thinking back to what I got out of that is I made him articulate his point until I had no choice, but to believe it. Mm. And a lot like 99% of the time I was wrong. (laughs) Like I would, I would be like, like if he just tried to make a point, it was like, this is like how I would explain it. Now, if somebody tried to make a point, but did not really back it up and you were like, okay, maybe, but like, give me more than that because Mm -hmm. that sounds pathetic yeah. Like, I'm not just going to believe that. Um, then I would take the opposite stance to like bait him into like really giving me a thorough explanation. And I have no clue why I was doing that. Like, I feel like I told myself like, man, I'm just being a, an asshole. I'm like being difficult <laughs> for no reason. It was definitely just funny. <laughs> but I, yeah, it was, and it was funny to like hear, but like in a way there was like a ton of utility in like that playing, taking the, you know, the lesser known side and just being like, like debunk it, like mm-hmm. show me where it's wrong. And then like, I probably processed a lot of like, of stuff that way, like gaining a better understanding of, even if I agreed with the point that they were trying to make for the most part, <laughs> I was like, yeah, but there's this whole other side that you're not even considering by taking that side, then they've considered it. And if they can still back up their side, it just like changes the, 
the dynamic. So like, it's funny to think about like with the whole speech and debate thing and like having conversations and like the classes that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. There's so much to be learned even by like taking the side you don't believe in. Yeah. You know, and just, and trying to get that perspective, like not take the idea as in just like be like defensive over it for no reason, but trying to come to a conclusion of like, why does somebody truly feel like this is the best thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and then being like, and then gaining an understanding and then you can be like, and that's how you're like engaging like civil discourse right right it's like by really not by hearing what somebody says you have to do more than that you have to really put yourself in the position of that person and be like why does this person think this way yeah and then you can start to unpack and be like okay maybe there's some situations where that is the best thing yeah you know and maybe they can start to understand why i'm on this side now too if i can somewhat see where they're coming from Mm -hmm. yeah i've been uh i've been like slaying Naval Ravikant's podcast, the Naval podcast. And it's really so interesting because he is like so succinct in the way he talks. And it's just like knowledge bomb, knowledge bomb. Mm -hmm. And I think this was him. It might've been somebody else, but he talked about how there was a tweet that got put out. I'm pretty sure he tweeted it. uh, And it said, a smart person is a slow reader. And he said that a lot of people took it like, oh, I read slow, so I must be smart. Um, and he he's talked about this too, I've heard in other podcasts of like... Wait, which is so funny that, that people would think, again, a smart person is a slow reader. Somebody would think so quickly that they are a slow reader, so they must be smart. That's the point <laughs> of the statement. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah, he's talked about this before of like, instead of reading a hundred books a year, I'd rather read one page, thoroughly think about it, reflect on what my thoughts are, really grasp that concept and then move forward. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of thinking about ideas, reflecting on them, trying to like fully understand them rather than just memorize does so much for our knowledge. Like people who can read slow, understand the concepts that they're actually reading instead of just being like, oh, yeah, I'll take that snippet. Um, wealth of value. Yeah. It, well, it's such a fascinating thing to think about, too, where, like, in in a lot of ways, the reading itself has zero utility from a growth perspective, Ex- aside from the way that it contributes to your ability to process things in a new way. Mm. You know? Yeah. Because if you were reading something that you – didn't think about didn't process in a new way it then it was useless Mm -hmm. but if you think about if you're reading new ideas that gives you then the potential to think and process in a new way that's where the utility is Mm -hmm. it's in breaking things down and thinking about things in a new way it's not about the reading itself yeah it's about the the presentation of ideas it's like the same thing with um with like making money almost like you can make a ton of money, mm-hmm. but if you're not doing the right things with it and not applying it to your life in the right way um, and not like maybe understanding that it's not the only thing, then it's just going to be pointless. Yeah. Like if you're reading all this information and not understanding it or applying it, what you've, what the information that is helpful, then 
it's just uh just taking notes yep i mean that's what i did all through my education uh, this is another thing last thing for me i remember in my history class in like grade school there was such an emphasis on take good notes take good notes and there was like a specific structure of how we're supposed to take notes and it's like write everything down that's pretty much in the paragraph and then never look at the notes again pretty much and it was the stupidest thing i've ever done yeah like they had me take notes on like 40 pages of a chapter that i was too stressed to read and understand because i was trying to take notes on this thing yeah It'd be interesting to like look back and think like, okay, if you had stopped taking notes and really paid attention in history, like really were paying attention, yeah. at, or at least to the degree that you had the attention that you were putting on your notes on the discussion, right? Mm-hmm. So that it was a still like a, an even score. And then somebody took you for like an hour once a week to really just like have the same conversation again about all of the key points that you learned you'd probably have absorbed way more history. A ton more. I would have probably narrowed down like a couple topics that I was super interested in and been able to riff on that for so long. Yeah, there's a reason why a lot of like stories throughout history that have been like traditionally, you know, relegated to spoken word and all of that. Like there's a reason why humans are uniquely able to like speak. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's... It's a natural human ability, and I feel like we underestimate the uh, the utility of like spreading ideas through through our words mm-hmm. and formulating ideas through our words. Yeah, and this is why mind mapping has changed the way I learn information. Mm. Like instead of taking notes on every little thing, when I just take, let's say it's a it's like a Ted talk on emotional awareness and they talk about like one huge topic that umbrellas into all these other topics. If I just write that one big word and then maybe like some other keywords about those little points, I'm going to remember everything. But if I'm Mm -hmm. writing every goddamn specific note, I'm not remembering anything. Right. And then when I look back to it, it doesn't impact me the same way. Yeah. Which in a way is you giving yourself just enough information to continue to have to go back, look at those few words. And then it demands you critically think again about how are these things all related. And that is in a way you requiring you put some thought and processing into remembering and synthesizing what you just heard. Right. And there was a reason why I wrote down just that one word. Yeah. And I can draw back. It would be like a good trigger. Yeah. Whew, man. This is a good one, Brennan. This is. We got deep on this. Yeah. We went all over the place. Fire. Mm. Fire. So better boys, better men. If you're interested in um, kind of what we've talked about, if you like the conversation, highly recommend this book. Uh, Don't have to agree with everything that's in it. Definitely up for your interpretation. But I think it's a, a really cool way to just start a really good conversation about a lot of things that are coming up and... I'm sure in some way you've experienced this or you see it in our society and our uh, American culture. Absolutely. All right, Brennan, do you know who? Hmm. No, we'll leave this one up for the for the audience. We're, we're not going to expose who. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back. Hope, hope you have a good time. If you're driving, stay safe. If you're running, 
run faster. Anything else, Brennan? If you're sitting, stand up. Sit harder. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good night, everyone. (laughs) 